0: Our scripture passage today is Psalm 24. You can find it typed on, uh, what is this, page 10 of your bulletin. It'll also be projected above me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. The word of the Lord.
1: Just a couple of things before Bradford comes to preach for us. First is, I um, would like to ex- extend a happy Father's Day uh, to those of you who are dads as well. Um, our earthly fathers, even our spiritual fathers, folks that have had influence on us, we give thanks to God uh, for those men today. Um, second, uh, Brian and his family are still out of town. He was the uh, main speaker at RYM's high school uh, Colorado conference last week, and then uh, they're staying, their family's staying in Colorado for one more week. So, if you all need anything, uh, the office will be open like normal. Um, I'll be here, so you can reach out to me if there's uh, anything that you need um, pastorally. Um, Second, we had our our churches, our denominations, General Assembly this past week. I was there. uh, Lee and Susan were there. Bradford was there. uh, And it was a great week. It was a good week to be together. It was the 50th anniversary of the PCA. So we're celebrating um, our 50th anniversary and uh, so thankful for that celebration, uh, even as we mourn the loss of some great fathers, some pastors, longtime pastors in our denomination. Um, It was particularly encouraging to hear great. Great preaching and uh, to be together. And then also uh, Tim Sasser was there as well. He works for Mission to the World, our missions agency. And to hear from some longtime uh, missionaries in our church that have been serving, some of them for 50 years uh, in places around the world, was just really encouraging. So um, it was a great week to be away. Uh, It was nice to have Bradford scheduled to preach um, so that I I didn't have to also prepare a sermon. Uh, So Bradford... uh, can come on up. Bradford's our RUF campus minister at TCU. Uh, Many of you know him, but if you don't, he is an ordained pastor in the PCA serving our students on TCU's campus, and we're glad he's with us.
2: Thank you, Andy. Really wanted to get to that needs no introduction point, but not not quite there yet. Keep pushing. Um, Psalm 24. Thank you, George, for reading for us. Uh, Kids, three things to listen for today. The first is bankruptcy. The second is a quote from a football coach. And the third is the idea of the New Jerusalem. So bankruptcy, quote from a football coach in um, the New Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your word never goes out and returns to you empty, always accomplishes its purposes. We pray that that will be true this afternoon and that you will be glorified uh, in and through this preaching of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in my opinion, there are three moments in comedy television that stand above all others. If you're curious, my thoughts here, the first is Barney Fife trying to recite the Declaration of Independence. The second is Jerry Seinfeld coming out of his dressing room in a pirate shirt. If you know, you know. Uh, And the third, the most important for our purposes here, comes from The Office, season four, when Michael Scott, financially burdened beyond all hope, opens his office door and shouts, I declare bankruptcy to the rest of the office. You can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen, says Oscar the accountant. I didn't say it, I declared it, says Michael. I think that scene is funny because all of us understand that some things are so important that they require much more than just saying something or even declaring it. So really important stuff, things like bankruptcy or getting married or having a child or or buying a house, Things like that often require teams of specialists, and they require paperwork and notaries or or witnesses of some sort. Really important things require, in other words, some level of ceremony. And so ceremony is, is what we have here in Psalm 24. In fact, uh, this scene is pretty similar to a very different television event and one that Brian touched on a few weeks ago, and that is the, the recent coronation of King Charles. And so if you watched it in, in human terms, it was an incredible ceremony. It's like it was, it was almost from another age, really is from another age, right? Uh, it, it was solemn, it was dignified, even majestic. And one part in particular uh, paralleled what we get here in Psalm 24. It, w- it was a part of the coordination formally called the recognition. And so in that moment, Charles was presented to his people in, in all of his splendor um, at, at all four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And the Archbishop of Canterbury proclaimed him the undoubted king to which all and sundry responded by shouting, God save King Charles. And so it was a powerful moment. But what if an even greater king showed up? What if a king showed up uh, who, who ruled and reigned not only over the United Kingdom and, and its Commonwealth realms but over all of the earth? An all creating, all holy, all victorious king, what would that coronation be like? and how would we respond to it? Psalm 24 asks us to consider that. In fact, it does sort of double duty here. It points uh, not just forward to this, this greater cosmic coronation, but also backward to a, a real, probably, historical and liturgical uh, occasion. Probably, we're not positive, the return of the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, maybe in First Chronicles 13.8, when David, who's the author of the psalm, returns victorious from Kiriath-Jerim. And so uh, that's part of the beauty of the psalms, by the way, and and something to keep in mind as we go through a number of them this summer, that though a psalm is often rooted in real historical events, it, it points to something far more. And so in Psalm 24, we don't just get bare prose, we don't just get a, a description of David's return from battle. Instead, we get to, to put on these, these glasses, these eschatological glasses uh, pointing uh, or, or letting us see forward uh, in this beautiful and stylized version of the king of all the earth returning from a, a great battle. A greater battle than David's, triumphant, to sit upon his throne and receive our worship. And so it's a scene that is far more solemn, it's far more dignified, it's far more majestic than any human coordination could possibly be. It's a scene that points forward to the Messiah, to the King of Kings, to Jesus himself. And so that's what we're going to look at this afternoon. We're going to do it in three parts. The first is the king blesser, the second is the subjects blessed, and the third is the royal blessing. So the blesser, the blessed, and the blessing. Let's look at the first of these, the blesser. Psalm 24 opens with uh, almost kind of a prologue in in verses 1 and 2. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So according to someone who's better at Hebrew than I am, the the first and, and most emphatic word, actually in both verses one and two in the original language is God, okay? In other words, we might read this as, the Lord's is the earth in its fullness. And by extension, the Lord's is is the world and all, like you and I, who dwell therein. And then verse 2 invokes creation, and it begins again with God. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. And this verse draws this sort of distinction between the, the wild and, and mighty waters. The sea in the Bible often symbolizes uh, what Greg Beale called old world threats. So this, this sort of ancient, uh, uh, ancient chaos and, and darkness. And so it's the land, uh, the dry earth, Psalm is pointing out referring to where, where humans like us abide in the safety of our king. And so I think the idea here, and why we need this prologue, is that the rest of the psalm is very Israel-centric, right? It it speaks of the God of Jacob. He's coming to Jerusalem. But nevertheless, this is not merely Israel's God. This is the God of all of the earth, of everything that we see, the creator and sustainer, of all that we are, all that we uh, have around us. And so it's a little bit of a a check to us, I think, and maybe a reminder that Christians throughout history and certainly uh, the Israelites uh, have struggled with thinking that if God is our God, then he, he looks like us, and he probably thinks like us, and he cares about the things that we care about, but God is, of course, much more than that. He's, he's not unfocused on Fort Worth or on your life or on my life, but His, his all-seeing and, and providential eye takes in at this moment all people in all places, including, uh, to use some examples from our current daily prayer project, Cape Town, South Africa, in San Francisco, in Tajikistan, in Bulgaria, in Malawi, in Berlin, in Ukraine, in Belarus, and even Dallas, that great Nineveh to the east. He's over all of it. And so 2 Corinthians sixteen nine says something very similar. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. In other words, this great creator king, the great blesser, he he knows and sees all, and and he's ready to to give his blessing. But the question is, who will receive it? Who can receive it? And that's our second part here. First was the king, the blesser, and now the the subject's blessed. So verse 3 asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? So this is is worship language. This is one of many pictures in Psalms that we get of God's people going up to worship the Lord. So you can think of the Psalms of Ascent. This Psalm is not one of those, but it's, it's similar. And Derek Kidner says this about what's pictured here. He says, it is to make a deliberate quest, to mount to a vantage point, to converge on it with other seekers, and finally to stand before the throne. So this Psalm is encouraging us to think about standing before the throne. In other words, this great king that we established in verses one and two, who may come before him to worship and to receive his blessing. It's a liturgical Q&A. And so verse four answers. It says, we referenced it uh, earlier in the service. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then 5a, he will receive the blessing from the Lord. What are we to make of this, right? Um, Andy pointed out earlier, some of the dissonance here, uh, it's kind of a jarring equation, might make us a, a little bit nervous. It seems to be saying that the, uh, the perfect king can only be worshiped by perfect people. To which we may ask, what are we doing here today, right? Uh, it, it might make us ask, Along the same lines, does it take clean hands and a pure heart to be blessed by the Lord, or does the blessing of the Lord provide us with clean hands and a pure heart? I think the answer actually is, is sort of yes. Sometimes we run into, in the scriptures, a sort of spiritual chicken and egg. I think that's what we have here, and we have to try to untangle it with, with our best theology. But before we do that, I just wanna sit here for just a minute and reiterate what is being said, because I think it's, it could be pretty easy to skate over, right? And, and so let's make this ultra clear and ask again, taking verses three and four, question, who can mount up in worship and receive the blessing of the king of all of the earth? Answer, he who has clean hands In a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, this verse is saying, if you hope to worship God, if you hope to be before the throne, then you must be holy inside and out. And you must be a worshiper of the one true God and not any idols. And righteous and true in, in all of your dealings. And in fact, this echoes really Psalm 15, which if anything provides more qualifications. So uh, I'll read you a snippet just to reinforce how high the bar is to even appear before this great king. Because even an earthly king, remember, not just anybody can come before uh, even an earthly king, right? And so how much more are God? Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. In other words, the picture here of the one who qualifies to worship a perfect king is a picture of the perfect worshiper so where does that leave us? My intern, um, Walt Horton, I don't know if he's in here today, uh, told me a story about his high school football coach that they were practicing one day and uh, Walt said something kind of jovial or kind of chatty to his football coach at the wrong time. And uh, this is a very football coach kind of thing. He said his coach whipped around and said, hey, I'm not your friend. They like really struck Walt and like, hey, this guy is different. He's not my buddy. Shouldn't really talk to him that way. And I think at least in the picture this psalm gives us that this is true of God as well. And uh, however we feel about that style of coaching maybe, or, or even, you know, we, we can certainly nuance this and say, you know, Jesus himself, John 15 says, I have called you friends, right? But King Charles was nobody's buddy at his coronation. He was the king. And just the same, but far more in the solemnity and the majesty of this holy place, this king is different. And if I could put it this way, before the throne, he is not your friend. There are echoes here the same, some of the same Hebrew expressions, uh, you can hear it even in the English of this, this language as used in Isaiah 6. That chapter is full of awe and dignity. The seraphim cry out, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah, remember, thinks he is dead because he doesn't, he doesn't have clean hands or he doesn't have a pure heart and neither do we, and so I am convinced that this is another just kind of check on us, and um, in this way, so I think that we have made um, a, a great cultural cottage industry of just vast silliness and uh, sort of wink-wink, messiness, like, ah, oh, we're all so messy, I'm messed up, you're messed up, we're all super messed up. Um, at times, maybe even, even reveling in how none of us have it together. And I, trust me, I stand before you, possibly one of the ringleaders, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm the president and also a client as it were, and uh, so here's what I mean. A few years ago, the Jeopardy! champion, Ken Jennings, who is himself very funny, a sort of semi-pro comedian, came out with a book about how humor has, has taken over our culture, and he said this. He said, the thing that woke me up was when airline safety videos started to get funny. When I flew as a kid, I was always terrified of that little laminated pamphlet that told you about oxygen mask, and where's your life jacket, and where's the nearest exit. But a few years ago, those safety demonstrations started to get replaced by little videos with musical numbers. And they were full of kind of wacky non sequitur jokes. Delta had an 80s themed one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the pilot, just like in the movie Airplane. And I remember thinking, he writes, wait, why does this have to be funny? There's nothing less funny than the odds of a plane crash, right? What is happening to us that we need jokes here? I think that's a great question. And so I'm asking you to stand uh, for a moment and and just sort of lay aside the levity that that we all dwell in, I certainly do, and, and feel just the weight of the throne room. And that we should know that some of the imperfections that we joke about every day would get us killed in his holy, holy, holy presence. But thanks be to God, right? Uh, That even though he does not accept worship from sinful creatures, he does accept worship from redeemed ones. And that's what we see in verse five. If we look closely, verse five, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Other translations use the word vindication here. It's it's an Old Testament picture of justification by faith, this doctrine that we hold so dear. And this verse is saying in the presence of the king, by faith, all that the king has is yours. Your worship, Of Him, in other words, your worship of Him opens the channel to receive the blessing, the righteousness that you need in order to worship Him. Now, is that a chicken and egg situation? Maybe, I don't know. In fact, it reminds me of uh, what my my seminary professor, Dr. Doug Kelly wrote in my favorite book on prayer. The book is titled, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? Which is a great question. Uh, He said this, the God of the scriptures has great blessings stored up for his people, but he has so planned it that those blessings can only be released by the prayers of his people. Okay. Think about that for a second, and now I think we can take that as a template and put it on top of what we're looking at in Psalm 24 and say, God has great blessings stored up for his people in worship, but he has also planned it that those blessings can only be released through worship. So I say again, in the presence of the king, all that the king has is yours. The blessing is yours. How can that be? How can that be? It's because he has already conquered. He is not sitting on his throne waiting for you to conquer your sin and ignorance and folly so that you could come to him. He already did that before he ever sat down. And that's the picture that we get in verses seven through 10, our third and final section here the royal blessing. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Okay, what is happening here? Uh, It sounds great, but uh, what does it mean? The picture is of a victorious returning king. Um, So, I would imagine these would be very, um, very stressful moments. You're, if you're in the city, you're waiting to see if your king's coming back victorious or whether you're about to get conquered and, and slayed and pillaged by some other tribe. Um, this is a picture of death. A couple different things we mentioned earlier, David returning, victorious, probably with the ark, representing the presence of God, seeking entrance into the holy city, but then it is stylized so that the procession is speaking directly to the gates, as if the doors of the city um, are speaking as the doorkeepers, if that makes sense. So, remember, we said earlier that important things require ceremony, and uh, that's what's happening here. This is a liturgical, worship-oriented ceremony. And it actually reminds me of something I read recently. It might help us understand this ritual that is fairly foreign to us. I mean, I know for me, I'm like, well, why doesn't God just open the doors? I don't I really get it. Um, so this is a scene from a novel that um, I read a little while ago. It's set in the Napoleonic Wars. And it talks about the ceremony of a captain of a ship called the Leopard coming aboard another ship called La Fletch. And so uh, this is in the British Navy at the time, which was extremely formal, right? And these ceremonies were inviolable. They meant absolutely everything. And the author speaks to it in this way. The boat ahoy roared the leopard's marine sentry, meaning what boat is that? Whom does it convey? The question was unnecessary since La Fletch lay not a cable's link to windward and all the leopards had seen the interplay between the captain and the admiral. A question unnecessary of information, but nevertheless of great importance since nothing but the coxswain's answering roar of La Fletch could set the proper ceremony in train. Okay, so likewise the questions and answers here in verses seven through 10, and certainly the way that would have played out uh, with David in real life, would have been unnecessary for information, but totally necessary in order to set the, the proper ceremony in train. He said, that is why we get this this majestic back and forth, continuing in verse nine, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Now, I think um, that there are two kinds of people in this room today dealing with one problem. And the one problem is this. uh, If we take this whole Psalm, Psalm 24, according to verses one through two, the world that we live in and we ourselves have been made by, created by a great king who not only deserves but requires our worship. And yet, in our sinful and broken selves, we cannot give him the worship that he deserves and requires. And frankly, we struggle to even want to. One author put it this way, speaking of this Psalm actually, he said, I would love to enjoy fellowship with God, to receive his blessing and his righteousness, but I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. And I've often lifted up my soul to falsehood and have sworn deceitfully. If that's the standard for acceptance unto God's favor, I can only hang my head in shame and sorrow. The first kind of person in this room lives full time in in that state, who has never sought the king's face and received in turn blessing and righteousness and salvation, and if that is you, then I would invite you this afternoon to um, open the doors of your heart as it were, in repentance and faith, and and let the king of glory come in. But more of us, or most of us in this room have done that. And we have repented and believed, but for any number of reasons, though we live in the city, we don't really feel like this great king is on the throne. Has he really conquered, right? Is he really who he says he is? Maybe you're sitting here today, and you have a, a devastating medical diagnosis in yourself or in your family. Uh, we certainly know of some of those as, as a church and are praying for you. There are probably others that we don't know about. And you are wondering, is the king on his throne? Maybe some of you are sitting here today and you are you are dogged by, you are just relentlessly shadowed day in and day out with completely unwanted thoughts. Thoughts that are some combination of sinful and anxious and ugly and depressed and impure, and discouraging, and, and you are wondering, where is the king? Where is this great king? Maybe some of you are sitting here today and, and you don't even have anything outwardly, at least all that pressing on your mind and your heart but you are nevertheless so tired, so utterly worn out with life, just getting out of bed, and you're wondering, do I even know the king? The message of this psalm to those who don't believe and to those who believe but are struggling is that whatever battle you are fighting in Christ, it is already won. And I really hesitate to say that because it almost sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? And yet, platitudes exist, I guess, because they're normally true. And if you look at this psalm, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The answer is Jesus did, and he died and rose and ascended into heaven as the king of glory. And if we think about Jesus, he didn't own anything. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. People wanted to kill him. He knows suffering. And so he knows your battles. And then when we look again at the psalm, we see that in Jesus we have something even better, that that his are the clean hands, his is the pure heart, his is is the battle that you are fighting, or the war itself, the whole thing is all his. He is strong and mighty, he is mighty in battle, he is coming, is in fact already there to sit on the throne of all of the earth and he has not set things right fully and finally yet, but he surely will. He is the undoubted king, the king of the north, and the south, and the east, and the west, the Lord of hosts. And so by laying your sins and your sorrows at his feet and worshiping him, then the blessing is secured so that when he returns, the clean hands and pure heart of Christ himself will be fully and finally yours. And in fact, he is not just coming back, but he is coming back and bringing with him his own city, the holy city coming down with him, the king of glory coming in to to the new Jerusalem where he will rule and reign for all time and we will be his blessed subjects. Spurgeon said it this way, he rides triumphantly into heaven and you shall ride there too if you trust him. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that we would understand these things and believe in these things and though though some of them are hard to wrap our minds around, we pray that that we would trust you um, and know you And that um, because of Jesus and because of his life and death and resurrection, that our worship would be acceptable to you uh, today and in this life and forevermore when he returns. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.